So I've got to warn you uh, that in this morning's message, uh, I'm going to be using the F word. Uh, now, I got to let you know, we, we've used this F word from time to time in environments like this. In fact, as I think about it, uh, we've probably used it countless times, but I feel the need to warn you because it, it, it has some pretty significant impact on some people. Now, I've heard that in times where we've used it, people have got out and literally walked out of the service. I heard another story of someone who found out that we were doing a series on this F word. And the fact that we were doing this series caused them to skip services the entire month. They missed a month of church because they, they couldn't handle the, the, the sound of it. Uh, this particular F, F word comes with six letters, uh, not to be confused with the four-letter version of the F word that we affectionately refer to as the F-bomb. Uh, but this particular F word uh, carries with it, in some cases, just as much of the punch and the hurt and the pain and the offense. What F word might I be talking about, you might wonder. Well, the word that we're going to be focused on today is the word family. Now, some of you might wonder why the word family would evoke such a reaction. And if you're wondering that, uh, chances are you probably have a family. You're probably pretty close to the kind of red or green circle of the social norm bullseye of, you know, a husband and wife with 2.4 kids and a dog and a white picket fence. But if you're not, then you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about when we elevate the kind of hierarchy or the priority of that social norm. And you know what I'm talking about when that gets intensified or exacerbated in an environment like the church. When we talk about how the church is a family and how God is our perfect parent and how we can learn about the way that God loves us through our parenting. Or how we learn about the way that God wants to relate to us as a, what's called a covenant relationship that's best mirrored or imaged by a marriage relationship. And through a marriage relationship, we can learn more about God. And as we use these metaphors of family and parenting and marriage, and as we talk about how to be better parents and how to have better marriages in church, one by one by one, as we discuss these dynamics of family, we sink in the pain to people who don't necessarily fit that mold. For people who haven't been able to have children or for people who've never married or been divorced or widowed. You know, I was talking to a bunch of singles this week just to get some input uh, on today's conversation and talking to a couple of them, they said it's, it's, it's amazing how unintentionally the church can make people feel like a second-class citizen. You know, one, one single said, it, it often makes me feel like I'm relegated to dine at the kiddies' table, even though I'm a grown adult. And the question we want to look at today is, how does that happen? How do we, even unintentionally, have such hurt-filled, harmful, excluding impact on so many people? I believe that the Bible actually speaks to this and can actually reveal a bit of diagnostics to us and provide a bit of remedy that I hope that we can all embrace today so that words like family are no longer swear words to large groups of people 
across our community. If you have a Bible, uh, I want you to turn in it, or if you have a Bible app, you can turn to the New Testament book of Galatians. Because as I was thinking about, you know, where scripture would speak to this probably the most accurately, the book of Galatians kind of simmered in my heart and mind uh, the closest to the surface. Uh, The book of Galatians, just so we all know, is a New Testament letter Uh, It's a letter written to a first century church by a guy named the Apostle Paul. So it was written after the life and teaching of Jesus. And uh, after some kind of preliminary introductory comments, uh, the Apostle Paul begins by introducing his letter this way in verse 6. He says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Seems that the Apostle Paul begins this letter with some harsh words for this church community in this place in the first century called Galatia. And he's actually accusing them of embracing a a life and an understanding of faith that violates the very faith that that they were first invited into. The very faith that Jesus envisioned them to. That's why he calls it a false gospel. They've been adopting certain mindsets and certain patterns of behavior that are totally deviating from God's design. If you're wondering what those are, just by way of a bit of background, a little bit of history on this church. There were people in that community who formerly uh, had lived a a Jewish faith. And so, you know, they were first century Jews understanding before Jesus' time that they were God's called out chosen special people and that God had chosen them to work personally and powerfully through that specific ethnicity. And one of the ways he worked personally and powerfully through that specific ethnicity was by giving them the law to obey, the Jewish law of God. And so some of these Jews who were starting to become part of this Galatian church, as you understand the history, that they were actually trying to encourage people who had become Jesus followers to adopt and incorporate more of their Jewish customs and habits and traditions. They were called in the first century, they were known as Judaizers. And so they were taking people who were trying to live out the vision and teaching of Jesus, who cast that vision and provided that teaching, interestingly enough, as a Jewish man himself. But they were trying to take people who had embraced that teaching and instead kind of revert them back or revert them into, if they weren't already Jewish, more of the Jewish customs and behaviors. And so they were trying, you had these Jewish people trying to make Christians more Jewish instead of entering the church and trying to become more Christian. That's basically the backstory of what was going on. And so as Paul kind of explains this and builds this, the point that he's making to this Galatian church, he kind of crescendos in uh, verse three of chapter three, where he says this, he says to the church, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He's describing the contrast between how their faith started out and how they're trying to continue and propagate their faith. And he uses these two terms, by the spirit and by the flesh. By by the spirit, what he means is a life fixated on and reliant on the spiritual work of Jesus within and among them. 
you know, realizing the sacrificial death of Jesus and the forgiveness that it provides and claiming that in faith as a gift from God. And then appreciating the miraculous resurrection of Jesus and the availability of his living spirit to invade their lives and empower them to live in the way that God had designed. To give them the very resource in his living spirit to live the way that they otherwise couldn't live on their own. That's what he's talking about in the life of faith that he describes as by the spirit. And he contrasts that with this term by the flesh, which you might think means, you know, according to your own natural urges and impulses and desires, which is kind of true. But I think in this case, more specifically, what Paul is referring to is this dynamic of the Judaizers where they're incorporating the customs and the habits of their day. By the flesh is just referring to kind of the cultural norms in their society. And he's basically saying, instead of the way that you started by the spirit in Christ, you're now devolving what you're calling faith into just patterning yourself after the customs of your world. And in doing that, he tries to make the point through chapter three in, in building this, this case of living life by the spirit in verse 26, where he concludes this way, he says, in Christ... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. These are spiritual terms. He says, as a result, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That reference to Abraham and promises and whatever is all specific commentary related to the Jewish faith. And he wants people to understand that instead of devolving to become, you know, Judaizers or Jewish you know, practicing Christians, instead, if they live by the spirit, they can experience all the benefits of that Old Testament pre-Jesus faith and then some. Because by living by the spirit, they can all function as the people of God, no matter who they are or where they've come from. You know, what Paul wants them to understand is that by making the point of their, their life of faith, the incorporation of the customs of their day, they're actually missing the point of what a life with God is all about. I'll say that again, by making the point of their life of faith, the incorporating of the customs and traditions and values of their day, they're fundamentally missing the point of what a life with God is all about. Now, why do you think that I believe that that passage can speak to us today when it comes to the pain and hurt and exclusion that the church so often inflicts on people outside of the normative mold of family and particularly today to singles among us. Because I believe that the same thing is true in our day. And I believe that, is, that what is happening when we're causing that pain, knowingly or unknowingly, is that we are making the point of incorporating the values and customs and priorities of our culture today instead of seeing life and living it according to the spiritual vision that God has for us. I believe that we are just as susceptible and just as guilty today of devolving to a cultural faith that is more what Paul would describe as by the flesh than it is by the spirit of God. 
See, the reason I believe that is because when people become followers of Jesus, when they entrust their lives to faith in Christ and begin to live that spiritual life, their identity becomes fundamentally rooted in a spiritual dynamic. Paul describes this in another letter to another church in the New Testament in Ephesians 2. He says, in your faith, he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer outsiders to God, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. You belong. He says, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's the image and the identity of people of faith. That as we become people who engage spiritually with God, we become not only empowered by the Spirit of God ourselves, but we become united and identified together with other people who are empowered by the Spirit of God themselves into a unified group of the people of God by the Spirit of God. And you got to know Jesus recognized this when he walked the earth as well. That's why in one passage it says when uh, Jesus' biological family came to visit him, some disciples of his says, said to him, hey, your, your mom and your brothers are here to visit you. And in Luke chapter 8, one of the uh, translations or paraphrases in the biographical accounts of Jesus, it says this in verse 21, Jesus' response is, my mother and my brothers are actually those who hear God's word and put it into practice. My mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now, that's not a slam. That's not a slam against his family of origin. That's a recognition of how he sees the world. Because Jesus' top priority was to be so intimately relating and dialed in to his heavenly father that the people he most identified with were other people who wanted to do that as well, who wanted to follow God and to submit their lives to him in faith. He lived with a spiritual perspective, not just one that was temporal or defined by the cultures and traditions and dynamics of our world. And I personally believe that the single greatest reason why, why we create this impact of marginalization and of like second class citizen is because we're actually succumbing to the norms of our culture and society when it comes to family life and marriage and parenting in contrast to things like singleness. I believe that we live in our our culture with this idea of a life progression, like a, a set of stepping stones or a ladder to climb that kind of increases your status in society. And when you get out of high school, you go and you, you get an education. After that education, you get a job. And after you get a job, you find a, a spouse. And after you find a spouse, you have kids. And after you have kids, you get the, 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 the home with the dog and the white picket fence. And then you grow old and become grandkids and the process repeats itself. And that's kind of how you climb the, the sort of societal ladder. And I find in the church, we not only kind of fall into the, the, the trap of just modeling and patterning after that value system, but then we reinforce it spiritually by talking exclusively about these family dynamics of marriage and parenting and say that they're the, they're the way that you understand God. Instead of allowing ourselves to, to adopt a mind that is intensely spiritual and see things the way Jesus saw them. Where my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. The trick, I believe, is for all of us to first things first adopt some spiritual perspective and a truly spiritual lens on life. 
I know that we talk about adopting certain lenses often. That's kind of an overused metaphor, but I think it, it's really applicable in an environment like this. And it reminds me of a few years ago where uh, my eyesight was starting to become a struggle for me. It was starting to get kind of blurry and cloudy and I was having a hard, hard time seeing at night. And, and I went to see my eye doctor and they looked at my eyes and they said, oh, you've got cataracts. You need surgery. And I said, what do you mean? I'm only 25. They said, no, 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 you're not 25 anymore. And uh, I actually had to go in and get cataract surgery. And I don't know if, uh, if you know how cataract surgery works, but they basically take the natural lenses of your eyes and they dissolve them. It's called emulsifying them. And then they implant artificial lenses in your eyes. Becky calls my eyes robot eyes because I've got artificial lenses implanted into my eyes. The cool thing was though, that very, very shortly after those cataract surgeries, uh, it was just revolutionary, the difference that it made in my eyesight, in the way that I could you know, finally see color and texture again, the way that I could reclaim color and vibrancy. I'd kind of lost that. And the way I was able to drive at night again, you know, I, w I wasn't able for two or three months to be able to drive at night. It was just too, too much of a blur for me. And, and the opportunity to get these new lenses implanted in me revolutionized the way that I was able to see the world and the way that I was able to live. The Bible says the same thing is true when we move from a perspective and value system of our world and adopt a spiritual perspective and a spiritual value system. Look at what it says in Romans chapter eight. Again, this is the apostle Paul writing where he says the mind or the perspective that is governed by, excuse me, governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. A perspective that is defined by the contours and value system and priority of our fallen world leads to death, meaning hurt, pain, exclusion, marginalization, but if we're able to allow God to work in us and provide for us a spiritually oriented perspective, the Bible says that's where we can find life and peace. That's where we can find life and peace. And I believe to people who fall outside of that kind of societally normative family mold today, I think together we can experience a greater degree of life and peace by adopting some spiritual lenses to how we live and how we re relate to each other. I think at a practical level, that means two things. First of all, to live with a spirit-oriented perspective means that we've got to redefine what success looks like. We've got to redefine success in our lives where society says there's this ladder to climb or there's this sequence of events that's supposed to take place in a certain kind of predicted order. Otherwise, you're kind of a, an, an outcast or a second-class citizen. We've got to realize that spiritually, from God's perspective and rooted in the Bible, God has a very different vision and priority for our lives. He doesn't rank our lives that way. He doesn't intend them to necessarily follow that pattern. In fact, in some places in scripture, it teaches the exact opposite. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, Apostle Paul writing to a first century church. He's speaking personally here where he says this, I wish that all of you were as I am. And he's referring to his marital status of unmarried. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. 
An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. He says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That you may live in the right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. What is the biblical end goal of our lives here on earth? It's not to get a job and buy a house and get married and have kids and climb that societal ladder of status. It has nothing to do with that. God says, according to the scriptures, that the end goal is undivided attention to the Lord. And he actually esteems singleness as a preferred marital status to help support that. Now, of course, in either marital status, both single and married, they both come with challenges and they both come with unique opportunities to contribute to that undivided attention to the Lord. But the point is that the Bible doesn't over elevate these statuses the bible elevates undivided attention to the lord as the end goal with those spiritual lenses we can change the definition of success so that there are spiritual end goals not just societal circumstantial status end goals and i think for some of us that would change some things i think for some of us when we relate to our single friends or for some of us who are parents of adult single people, we will no longer tell them that if they were more faithful to God, God would be faithful to them and give them a spouse. Like so many singles have to endure hearing time and time again. That's just a flatly unbiblical concept. The reward for greater faithfulness to God, so the scriptures teach, is not a spouse. It's greater spiritual opportunity to have impact. That's what the scriptures teach, right? We're not gonna, gonna mix it up with the singles among us and tell them that as they're single, not to worry because God has them in this season to prepare them for that time when he gives them a spouse. That's not why God has them where he's at. God has them where he has them where they're at so that he can make the most of their life on earth as it is right where it's at. It has nothing to do with preparing them for the future or whether he's going to get them married or not. And we can stop sending those messages that set up like we've succumbed to the pattern and value system of our world that set up marriage or parenting or having a family like it's the end all be all and you're a spiritual failure if you haven't experienced that. Spiritual success has nothing to do with your marital status or lack thereof. It has everything to do with where your heart is at toward God and your undivided attention to him and the degree to which you're loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as yourself. Doesn't mean that, you know, marriage and parenting and things like that in the Bible are unimportant. Having a spiritual lens doesn't mean that they're unimportant. It just means that they're no longer primarily important in the way that our society can impress that pressure upon us. By putting on these spiritual lenses, we can see life differently and realize that there's a totally different end goal that we can all aspire to, no matter what our circumstance or status in life. Second thing related to that is I think when we start to live with a spirit-oriented perspective and define success differently, 
we can then define the way that we relate differently, specifically by redefining our need in relationships. We redefine our need in relationships. See, if the whole goal of my life is to get married and to you know, become a parent and raise kids, well then the people that I need around me to help achieve that are people who are gonna help me get married and who are gonna help me have kids. And once I do, they're gonna kind of help and support my marriage and my parenting. I need to surround myself with people like me so that they can reinforce the life that I'm aspiring to if that's my end goal. But if my end goal has become a spiritual one of undivided attention to the Lord, then all of a sudden the people I need around me to surround me and support me are people who will spiritually stimulate me to that end. And the Bible provides a recipe to the kind of people that we ought to surround ourselves with to provide the maximum spiritual stimulation. You want to know what that recipe is called? It's called diversity. Diversity. Look what it says a few chapters later, same book, 1 Corinthians, uh, this time in chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul is comparing the people of God to the metaphor of a human body with all of its various unique parts. He says in the middle of this passage in verse 21 that an eye cannot say to a hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Now what God isn't saying in using this body metaphor on the people of God, he isn't saying that there are certain parts of the body or certain people among us that have more or less value. That's not what he's saying. Why he's teaching this to that church is because he understands that there are some people who feel that. There are some people who feel like second-class citizens, who feel they have less value. And the passage is to say, no, you don't. In fact, some people who feel that they have the least value actually have the greatest. And that certain body parts can't say to any other body parts, I don't need you. Every part needs all the others in order for us to thrive the most as a body, not just as a part. And when we adopt that spiritual lens that defines success in spiritual terms instead of in terms of our society and culture, we start to realize that the kind of people that can surround us can provide us all kinds of encouragement and accountability and objective perspective, even if, or maybe especially if, they don't share our exact circumstance or season in life. So ask yourself, are the kind of people that you try to surround yourself with a, a diverse mix of people who will maximize the spiritual stimulation of your life? You know, when you hang out socially, do you only hang out with people who are exactly like you or little clusters of us four or no more? Or do you reach out to people in different seasons of life? You know, married people, are you able to hang out with singles and have bona fide friendships, not just make them feel like they're third wheels or like they're pitied? You feel sorry for them. 
and you know, in mixed company, are we able to have reciprocally spiritually stimulating conversations as friends or in our biological families or, or in life group conversations? Are we able to be just as attentive and just as compassionate and sympathetic to the needs of people outside of a marriage relationship as people who are in married relationships or who are parents expect people to be of their challenges? Or inversely, do we write off the, the possibility that other people outside of our circumstances could possibly speak into ours and only allow people who are like us to be a voice in our lives? Do we actually embrace the diversity of what God wants to provide us in a community like this to optimize our spiritual stimulation through embracing each other and Enabling everyone to realize their need, not make people who are different than us feel like they don't matter and like they need to sit at the kids' table. Gang, this is a big deal around here. I talk to people all the time who don't necessarily fit that societal mold of married with kids and two point, you know, of 2.4 kids and a dog and a white picket fence. And the church only inflames that pain because... I believe so often we can adopt not a Judaizer, but a similarly kind of culturally morphed version of life and faith that instead embraces the values of our culture and society more than it does the values of Jesus spiritually. And I believe that we can do better in this. You know, I was talking to people this week and just realizing again, you know, not just that we talk about family a lot, but you know, you open our program these days and it'll say, you know, what's here for my family? Implying that if you're reading this and you don't have one, you don't really fit around here. We have an entire department of ministry. We only have five departments in this entire organization. One of them serves the next generation. We call it family ministry to reinforce that family normative dynamic, even in our church. You know, every year around this time, we have one of these series that we devote to family matters. And when we do, we often talk about things like marriage and parenting. And again, reinforce the family normative dynamic so that people who don't fit that mold for whatever reason feel like they're on the outs. And you got to know that in this next month, we're going to try to change that. Our vision for this series is that we're going to have some significant conversations about how we can be the people of God that buck against that societal tide and no longer function as a church community that reinforces it, but actually as a church community that fights against it and passionately and personally pursues Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and tries to love our neighbor as ourselves in a way that needs one another and in a way that encourages and stimulates one another, not just for each other's growth, but so that we can be the best spiritual picture of the love and heart of God to a watching world that is desperate for him. Our goal is to be a fully functioning spiritual family, but not one that causes pain and makes that six letter word feel like a swear word to so many people. That's the journey we're on this month, starting with today. And I hope today, first things first, we can adopt the spiritual lenses to do it, to redefine success and redefine need so that we all need each other and no longer make people feel like second-class citizens, but desperately unite with one another to realize the vision that God has for all of us. 
Because when it comes to God's activity in and through our lives, into our community, this, this, all of us, this is us. Not just the us for and no more who are just like us in every way and align with our own circumstance and season of life. We want to be a community that celebrates that this is us. That's what this next month is about. Let's pray together. Well, God in heaven, I want to thank you for pouring out your love on every single one of us. And for those of us who struggle with these kinds of things, who find ourselves outside of that kind of bullseye of our societal norm of married and parents and the 2.4 kids and the whole bit, I pray that you would breathe comfort, that you would breathe inspiration into us, that you would breathe encouragement to remind us just how valuable we are in your sight just how needed we are in your community and that we are first-class citizens. Our citizenship is with you spiritually because of Jesus. God, for those of us who find ourselves a little closer to that societal norm, I pray that you would just stir in our hearts how little that norm actually matters to you. That what ultimately matters is fully devoting ourselves to you and that we need diversity to do that better. Help us together as people across our locations, across our community, across Niagara, of all different ages and stages and stripes and circumstances and seasons of life. Help us to desperately embrace each other so that we can encourage and stimulate our lives with you, not just personally, but together as a church community so that we can be that reflection of Jesus that the world is desperately needing. God, make us a better us this month and help us to celebrate, to truly celebrate the gift that you've given us in us as we celebrate the this that is us this month. We love you and we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.